Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And share with your families, colleagues, and friends as well. It makes a huge difference indeed. Today, we are talking about the world of charities, particularly with a UK focus. And we have none other than Deborah Alcock-Tyler, who's the chief executive of the Directory of Social Change. You could say it's sort of like the charity for charities. And they, uh, they try to look at charities as a vehicle to make change happen, as the ideal vehicle to make that happen. Now, before we kick things off, I'd like to extend a heartfelt thanks to our sponsors, Quilt AI. Quilt AI is an artificial intelligence-powered consumer insights and market research platform. They currently work with approximately 100 clients, ranging from large corporates such as Coca-Cola, Unilever, and Visa, to technology companies such as Twitter and Amazon, and large philanthropic organizations such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, Girl Effect, the UN, and Children's Investment Fund Foundation. With 6 million data sources and hundreds of AI models, they're able to answer any consumer or beneficiary research problem across more than 90 countries. And in 2019, their mission-based technology approach led The Economist to calling them an AI for good company. So do check them out at quilt.ai. So Deborah, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Pleasure to be here, Alberto. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about the Directory of Social Change. What's that all about? Sure, yeah. Well, so Directory of Social Change, or DSC, as we call it, for ease, um, it's been going for about, well, it was set up in the late 1970s, so we've been around quite, you know, not far off 50 years now. And it was really set up with this idea that the world changes for the better when people come together, when they get off their backsides and they do things to help themselves and to help their communities and to help other citizens in the country. And that one of the best vehicles for making those things happen is through charities. And, you know, in other words, if you give people a structure around which they can gather, it makes it a lot easier for them to do the things that they want to do in terms of helping and supporting other people. So DSC is fundamentally about, about making the world a better place. But the way in which we do it is we help charities to be the best they can possibly be because we know if the charities get it right then the human beings will get it right and then the world will get better so we do um, anything at all to do with running a charity so we teach you how to govern it well how to um, attract volunteers who's got the money and how to get it how to fundraise responsibly um, how to comply with legislation you know literally anything at all to do with running a charity DSC has information and support on how you can do that and we do it through training programs conferences newsletters books you know um, articles free stuff that sort of thing so any possible way we can get the information out to you we do everything huh great and how many people work uh, work at the DSC how many of you are there and uh, and where do you operate yeah, we've got about 35 people all across the country, not even just across the country. You know, we've got staff member based in Spain and one based in Ireland. And, you know, so we're we're a remote working organisation now. So we have people all over the place. Yeah. And we have um, and, and sort of the construct is we a lot of what we know for is research. So we do an awful lot of research into uh, trusts and foundations, government funding and company giving, for example. So I have a whole team of researchers who that's what they do is they look into sources of funding, who's got it how they spend it, whether they're doing with it what they said they would, uh, but also, you know, do bespoke, bespoke research as well. So we do quite a lot of work on impact, you know, the actual impact that charities have. My team will do stuff around that. And then obviously we have tra our trainers and our authors and so A little forth. bit of everything. And now you focus on the UK, even though you have some staff 
elsewhere or, yeah, or do you in the UK yeah because obviously you know charity law you have to specify your area of operation so we're primarily focused well actually technically we're registered as a charity in England and Wales so no actually that's not true we're also registered with with Oscar up in Scotland but yeah we're primarily UK focused but you say that you see is actually an awful lot of charities in the UK working overseas so we help them to get it better here so they can get it better over there so yeah, yeah. What's the now? I'm going to ask you a very broad question, but That's okay. yeah, what's the state of affairs with charities today? How would you describe things? You know, it's kind of interesting, actually. It's a really, really, really good question. So I think they feel very battered and bruised, to be perfectly honest with you. More than, I mean, I've worked in the, in this sector, in the charitable sector, for over 35 years, and I would say in all those 35 years, this is the most tired and sort of you know, not defeated because charities are never defeated, but sort of just feeling got at they've ever felt. I think that charities at the moment feel they're operating in a very hostile environment, like the media's very negative about charities typically. This government really is not a fan of charitable endeavour, you know, and, that, and that's not just what it says. You know, it, it tends to see charities as being a bit woke, doesn't like charities campaigning particularly. And also you can see the government is not is not particularly found on charities by its behaviours too, like the lack of money we got, the processes we had to go through during the pandemic. So, and I think lots of charities really feel that, that, you know, they're not taken seriously, they're not valued, they're not supported. And that can be quite exhausting. Um, although, you know, for most of us, that kind of external, you know, sort of it not being valued really actually doesn't particularly necessarily affect the day-to-day -day work because the vast majority of charities are small they're working in local areas and they're very much appreciated by the people in the areas in which they're working I think it's just the broader narrative can just feel a bit tiring sometimes they are always complain about money but they always have and as I say you know it's never easy to get money in charities I mean even during the period of, of the last Labour government when the sector was awash with money because, you know, the Labour government very much saw using charities as a way of getting its objectives done. Interestingly, of course, because that's actually not typically a Labour ideology. In fact, you know, they, they would have tended to be more state, whereas the Conservatives, you would have thought, would have been a much more charity friendly because that is about self-determination and stuff like that. So it's really interesting that the core ideologies of our two main political parties don't actually play out in practice when it comes to the voluntary sector. But that's a, a slight tangent there. But anyway, but even when we were awash with money, that was still a struggle. There's never enough money to do all the work that you need to do. So, they, so I think that's, um, yeah, that's a challenge. But overall, I would say is actually, you know, they've been incredible. Is the honest truth. I mean, if ever there was a test of the amazingness of the voluntary sector in the UK, it was during the pandemic when we mobilised literally millions of volunteers. When we, you know, we had you know massive decimations of our finances, and yet still managed to provide services. And hospices kept hospicing and you know, folk working with people with addictions still kept working with those people with addictions and how we adapted and changed the services. So I would say also pretty blooming pleased with themselves as well, proving that they can, um, they can do the work whatever the circumstances. That's great. That's good. Now, the, the money angle, obviously, uh, you mentioned always very challenging. Let me ask you, is there a little bit of a disconnect between what somebody might perceive as a charity and foundations? Who are also registered charities, but and the, and I guess what I'm trying to get at here with the disconnect is, uh, if we look at at the stock market, the Nasdaq, all of these things over the, over 2021. Let's skip the early part of 2022. Um, the, the the stock market's been really very strong. A lot of high net worth individuals have done very well. And a lot of foundations have actually increased their grant making during COVID because 
of the of the threat, the unprecedented challenge that they they perceived. How do you how do you connect these two? How do you connect the world where high nets are actually doing very well, and a lot of these foundations have been granting out more than they usually do uh, during the pandemic, and the challenge of these charities? Well, you have to look at the metadata. The thing is, is that grants and foundations account for, I think it's something in the region about nine billion pounds of worth of money into the sector, but that's only about 10% of all the money that's distributed in the sector. So I might be out by a few percentage points either way, Alberto, because, you know, things change. But broadly, they are, they're needed and valued and incredibly important, but they're not the biggest fund of the sector. The biggest fund of the sector actually is the general public. It's human beings donating either because they buy they purchase services from charities or they shop in charity shops or they put their hands in their pockets and they put money in the bucket or you know give that extra 50p at the till or whatever so they're the biggest and in any uh and and so what would tend to happen is when you with the pandemic in particular uh, people give money when they're asked very few people wake up in the morning Alberta, and think right i'm gonna have a shower i'm gonna have a shave and i'm gonna donate to charity that's not typically how it happens what happens is is somebody asks you for money and then you give money when your opportunities to ask people money are massively limited you get less money that's just inevitable so when you can't run fundraising events or you know or have fair or have local fairs or you know have dinners or award ceremonies or things like that inevitably you're going to find that even though the general the public are always willing to give you've got to make it easy for them to give and and, if, and when people give spontaneously in that way that's that's probably the biggest impact another part of the impact of course is um state funding so when the government cuts money to the when the, when the when central government cuts money to local authorities an awful lot of funding to charities doesn't come from national state at least not you know at national level at least not directly it usually comes via the local authority or the ccg or whatever the you know the local mechanisms are what you will find is that inevitably that money at local authority level gets squeezed because they say we've got to sort out the roads we can't afford to spend the money on the whatever the particular local program is so even if trusts and foundations are doing well as a, you know they're just a part of the whole pie and they're not a sufficient enough part for they're doing well to compensate for where other money isn't coming through. And actually, also, interestingly, now, you know, you can challenge me on this data because I'm not 100% confident about Alberto. I'm pretty sure when we were doing our you know, investigations last year that we came across some data that said philanthropists are actually slightly reducing the amount of money that they're giving away. So high net worth individuals in particular. Um, which is very interesting. But again, you'd have to, you know, I'm absolutely happy to be challenged that and discover actually they've massively increased it. But typically, you will know this, typically, you know, poorer people give a higher proportion of their income than richer people. So the absolute amounts might sound huge, you know, so-and-so gave a million, but in the context of their overall wealth, that's 0.0%, 1% of whatever it is versus, you know, your average ordinary donor in the street who gives probably around about 3%. Yeah, the uh, I don't know if you know the folks at the Beacon Collaborative, but yeah. they are they're right really keen on encouraging philanthropy, especially that that major giving philanthropy and yeah. and uh, and saying, guys, in the UK we got to do a little bit more than yeah. what's actually happening. Yeah. Now you mentioned a lot of the funding comes from the general public, and yeah. I like that I like that description of not everybody just you know goes about their day and says I have a third of my to do is just to give money yeah. um, to a charity. What's the public perception these days? So you mentioned charity bosses are a little bit sometimes feeling dis deflated yeah. by the headlines. The headlines are read by everybody yeah. uh, of the general public. How does that translate into actual sentiment if you can put your finger on the pulse of what people are thinking if there is such a thing? 
Well, Joe, you know, interesting about it. I'm always deeply cynical and suspicious about measures of public perceptions of charities or anybody, in fact, because half the time they don't know what they're talking about. The reality is, is, is that the problem with because the, the thing is, there's charity which is a legal entity, a capital C, and then there's charity which is the behaviour of being charitable. And very often, the public confuse the two things, or they don't. So when you say to them about charities. Typically, they will call to mind a number of the very large, you know, international charities. So they'll think of MSPCC or Save the Children or Oxfam or something like that. And so when you ask them what to think about charities, they're very often talking about an entity they don't really know very much about. They probably don't donate to or volunteer for, but they've read a story about. But actually, then when you look at their own behaviour, what you find is, interestingly, there's very often not a direct link between negative stories about charities and what people's actual behaviour. So I'm always very dismissive when they say, Say, oh, trust in charities has gone down I was like yeah because you ask people you know it's like asking Deborah do you believe in being fit and healthy yes are you no you know what I mean it's like there's a massive difference between what people say and what they say they think and also the fact that most of us don't even really know what we think or we weren't even thinking about it until somebody says what do you think about charities so I always say the metric of trust and confidence perception of charities in, in people's actual behavior and on the whole levels of giving and volunteering are really relatively stable and we've seen a massive spike in volunteering obviously over the pandemic but that's that was purposeful volunteering and that's you know and I must admit I question a little this notion that we're going to be able to maintain those levels because people step up in a massive emergency and then they filter back down again personally I don't think there's anything wrong with that I think it's okay for people to come in and out of volunteering you know this kind of notion that we've got to get everybody there all the time I think is a bit is a bit misled um, but then you also look at giving so the, the public not giving as much during the pandemic has not really been about um, the fact they don't want to give, it's much been more to do with the opportunities to give. And in fact, interestingly, I saw, I think it's something like, um, isn't it legacy um, giving has gone up by 20%? Uh, it's a really high figure over the last year. So in other words, people are still trying to find ways to give. Mm. You touched on one thing, which is, you know, most people, when they think about charity, capital C, they're thinking about those big uh, organizations that, that are sort of household names. And then you have a lot of small ones. Um, that is one thing I do hear about. A lot of times people say, yeah, you know, there's so many charities, a lot of them seem to overlap with each other. I'm not quite sure where my money's going. Is it, what, what, what do you make of all of that? Oh, for, I, I, you know, it makes me really cross when people say duplication or, you know, far too many charities, Alberta. It actually makes me want to jump up and down and throw things around because it's ridiculous. It's a bit like saying there were too many shoe shops or too many makers of chocolate bars. You know, it's like, because there aren't too many charities. The honest truth is, if there were too many charities, most of them wouldn't survive, because you've got to attract funding and you've got to attract support and people have got to use your services. About 6,000 charities a year are born and about 6,000 charities a year die. So the, the charity register is incredibly stable over time. But it hasn't really changed very much over the last 50 years or so, apart from you know classifications of what is and isn't a charity of change, but the actual numbers haven't really. And the point about it is, it's interesting, isn't it? We have laws in our country about monopoly. So you are not allowed to be the single supermarket or the only shoe maker or the only chocolate bar provider because we have competition laws, which are about there needs to be competition. Yet somehow we come to the voluntary sector and we're like, yeah, but we don't, we don't approve of that in the voluntary sector. So there's got to be one charity that serves animals. 
And that, that's the only charity you can donate to if you care about animals. And it's the only charity you can volunteer for. And it's the only charity that's going to care for animals. That's ridiculous. Because what happens if you don't agree with the policies or the politics of those charities? So, of course, charities overlap in the work that they do, just as businesses overlap in the work that they do. And, and public services overlap in the work they do, because that's the nature you know, and it's also the fact that, interestingly, people say there are too many charities or that they overlap. But actually, if you think about parts of the country, so many of our charities are concentrated in London and the southeast, actually. And yet the most deprived areas probably don't have enough charity. So I you know, have very little time for that notion. It's, that it's And also it's never. Organisations are different. I remember um, years ago, the MP for Southwark, whose name Simon Hughes, I think he was moaning about the fact that there, there were, I don't know, 26 homeless charities or something in his, in his constituency of Southwark. And he's like, and you sort of thought, well, so the assumption being that if you're a homeless person, you just have to be grateful for whatever charity, like you, you don't have agency, you don't have choice, like a homeless person is like a, doesn't, is not a human being, has a right to say, I don't like that charity, I don't like the way they behave towards me or other people, I don't approve. You know what I mean? It's like, it's almost this, it's a very Victorian patriarchal notion, isn't it? Like there are needy people out there and it's our job to rationalise how we help them rather than to say the voluntary sector is a messy, complex reflection of human beings, both those who need help and those who want to give help and that's okay. Hmm. I don't see you jumping up and down. So actually, that's good. You, you kept, kept your composure. You told me to keep still, Alberto. <laughs> Now, let me play a little bit of devil's advocate here, right? Oh. Uh, is there a perfect parallel between the private sector and the not-for-profit? And by that, I mean, in the private sector, you know, if you're oversupplying a market, you're going necessarily to consolidate because it's going to be somebody taking over somebody else um, and so forth. Uh, how does this translate into, into the charity space where we don't have takeover or hostile takeovers, where you don't have activist shareholders, where incentives are a bit different? Yeah. Well, of course, lots of charities merge, you know, they, they gather together and come into one charity. Although the interesting thing is when that happens, all that happens is within a very short space of time, a new small charity merges to replace a small charity that merged with a big one. That's why the register is so stable. You know, it's like you, you see, you hear all the time of these charities merging and getting bigger. And then what happens is just a new charity pops up to replace the, the one that disappeared. So even when they do do it, it doesn't reduce the number of charities overall, you know, to be perfectly honest with you. I also think that the interesting thing about talking about the parallels between the private sector and the, and the voluntary sector and charities, the charitable sector is much, much more challenging and much harder uh, to run a charitable organisation than it is to run a business because... Businesses obviously have to comply with legislation as you as like you know everybody else does, and they have a, a motive. They, but they very often have a very clear purpose. I mean, the, the purpose is to generate profit. There is nothing wrong with that. I don't think that's anything to be sniffed at. In fact, we want businesses to be profitable because when they're profitable, they succeed, they employ people, they pay tax. Well, some of them pay taxes, you know. So, so actually, we want businesses to be profitable and succeed. But in the charitable sector, it's a very different and much more complex issue because money is not our purpose. Money is money is the mechanism by which we deliver whatever our particular purpose has to be. So, for example, when you register a company, you don't have to register it under a different set of objects. You know, it's like you set up a company, it's there to make business. You might describe what the company does when you register the company house, but it's kind of that, it's it really. If you register a charity, you have to decide which one of the 13 
um, charitable object purposes that you fall under. You then have to turn that into a very specific set of objects for your particular charity. You have to have a, a very specific set of rules about how you will engage in delivering that charity. You, you also scrutinise in a way that you're not scrutinising the, in the private sector, which always makes me, makes me laugh, actually, is that, you know, we have to disclose information about where we get our money from and where we spend it and how we spend it and how much we spend it. You don't get anywhere near that level of detail in the private sector. You know, so, so in many, many ways, it's much harder. We also have to engage politically in the voluntary sector, both politically at national and local level, which you don't have to do in quite the same way you know, in the private sector. I mean, my friend who runs um, a small business shops, she engages a bit at local level to do with like, you know, planning and business rates, but that's about it. Really, she doesn't have to worry about what their policy is about, you know, housing or transport or that sort of thing. Whereas the charities in my area do have to worry about what those things are and do need to know what the local council's issues are. So, yeah, so I think it's, I, I know loads of people, Alberta, if I was talking to someone last week who said, you know, I worked in business all my life, Deborah. I came into the launch sector three years ago thinking, right, time now to have a slightly easier life, to feel like, you know, I'm, I'm doing good and feel good about myself. I said, oh, my God, I had no idea. I'm more knackered now than I was before. And there's also, there's, there's you know, if you think about um, just, uh, chief exec salaries, people get outraged and livid about the salaries of chief executives, but don't bat an eyelid about the salary, for example, Richard Desmond, who, you know, ran a porn empire. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's hilarious, isn't it? Like nobody sort of bangs on about that. And yet they get really, really upset if a, cha if a charity chief executive is paid over £100,000 a year, you know. Mm. How do you help those CEOs, those charity CEOs, with the clarity of thought and purpose that's required to run a charity? Because as you mentioned, there's this really strong distinction between a straightforward private enterprise, yeah. which often, not always, but generally yeah. speaking, we're talking about purely guided by the profit motive, although you have purpose-driven and of so course, forth. Yeah. Um, and charities where that clarity of thought you know, that target is in some ways a moving target and it's very blurry. And in actual fact, as I'm sure you'll agree without putting thoughts into you, but many times it's even the case that within a board of trustees of a charity, there's slightly different views of what that impact should look like, how you quantify, right? And yeah. so it's enough to drive somebody crazy. What do you tell those people actually running the charities how to keep their sanity and what to do? Well, there's a few things here. And actually, it's funny you should say that about boards, because as you know, Alberto, I wrote a book called It's a Battle on the Board, which is precisely about how challenged it is when you've got eight or 12 or 15 people, all of whom actually have quite different views about how the charity should be run. But to me, it's always about come back to the purpose. In, in every single thing that you're doing, every decision you take, you ask yourself, how is that decision helping us to achieve our charitable object? So, for example, if, you're, if your object is to keep children safe, in all of the conversations you have, whether it's about funding, whether it's about rules and regulations, whatever the thing is, how is that decision helping you to keep children safe in whatever way, shape or form that is? And it's the same with funding. It's like, you know, I would I always say when I talk to boards of trustees, which, as you can imagine, I do a lot. I always say to them, if your conversations are about the money and about growth, you're having completely the wrong conversation. It is not your job as a board of a charity to talk about growing the charity. It's your job to talk about what do you need to do in order to serve your beneficiaries. It might be that one of those things is to grow the charity. It might equally be that it's not about growing the charity. It's about keeping the charity small and focusing efforts on a particular subgroup or whatever the thing happens to be. So it's so it's saying like if you're always coming back to what is it you're there to achieve and replying and that's that's it in every single conversation you have, 
it, it, I wouldn't say it necessarily makes it easier, but it helps you not to lose focus on, on what the whole point of the thing is. Mm. You know, when people get distracted by methods and it's always, how is this helping to serve our beneficiaries? Now, I wouldn't be at all surprised if actually most of those boards you deal with, a lot of them are, most of them are saying, uh, we have been giving targets to our executives, yeah. grow yeah. this thing. Yeah, yeah. Right? And, I, and so I would always be saying to them, why? To what end? What is this growth going to achieve? And like really, really pinning it down. What you're saying is like, we want to reach 10,000 vulnerable or 10,000 children in vulnerable situations. Is that, that that's a reasonable target. Okay, what is what do we need to do in order to do that? Now, it might be you need to raise more money. It might not be that at all. It might actually be that what you need to do is focus a bit on your lobbying and your campaigning, get a change in the law. That's the distinction. So if you're focusing on the, the object, very often you will see that it's not necessarily about money that's going to help you to solve that problem. It might be an entirely different thing. I mean, shelter is a case in point. You know, shelter has changed quite dramatically as a, as a national charity, and it had been very, very big, and it was... Uh, had a lot of contracts with local authorities to, to, you know, to deliver on the ground work. And then Polly Neat came in and said, actually, I don't think we should be doing this. I think we, we should be we should shrink and we should be much, much more about campaigning for change and making making the case for policies to change so that people don't end up homeless. And I'm not talking about here particularly street homelessness, because it's a it's a big misunderstanding that, you know, street homelessness is homelessness. Homelessness is a spectrum, you know, from people who are in temporary accommodation to people who are sofa surfing, you know, there's a big homelessness problem and that's not all street homelessness. And they went back to their core. What does shelter actually exist here to do? And that's why they, they've actually shrunk. They reduced the money they're going for in order to focus on their core. So it's a completely legitimate thing to do. So here you are saying, you know, guys, really focus on the clarity of thought, the purpose it's not about the growth necessarily it could be but actually it's about serving those beneficiaries that you have in the crosshairs what other words of wisdom would you like to share in terms of those opportunities for improvement within the charity sector now some of the criticisms that come to the charity sector are founded some are not but irrespective of any of these things what are the what are, where are the the main opportunities for improvement that you would would love for 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 those running charities to to uh, take stock off. Do you know, this is an answer to your question, Alberto, but it's probably not the one you expect. I think the voluntary sector suffers and damages itself by being far too humble and grateful and not actually standing up for how incredibly amazing the organisations that we have in our sector are, the work that they do, the things that they achieve. And I think that we, we sort of come from this, we're embarrassed to ask for money. You, and you, you see it in society when, oh, you work for a charity or you just work for a charity. Oh, how lovely. It must be so nice. But, you know, that whole sort of thing. And I think that we fail to get traction very often in our local authorities and, and at national level because we're too grateful and humble. And, you know, instead of saying, excuse me, you need us. I mean, you can do it non-aggressively, but you know what I mean? It's like, there's a way of doing it, but about saying that actually, about the best example I can think of, Alberta, is I'm sure I may have mentioned this to you before, but, but the difference between transactional nature of our work and transformational. Hmm. So the example I, use, I typically use is I talk about a canal side and the canal side in this particular community is terrible. It's like got broken down shopping trolleys and, you know, needles and detritus. And just generally, it's a very unsafe, it's a very dirty, unsafe area. And the local community complained about it. So you go to the local authority and say, we need to do something about this. So the local authority has two options. Option one, it issues a tender uh, for someone to come and clean up the canal. And a company rocks up, abbs.co.uk, which stands for a bunch of blokes with shovels, 
they they tender for it they win the tender and every six months for three years they rock up they clear up the canal side and they go away that's a transactional view of the problem that the problem is a dirty canal side and the and the solution is for someone to clean it up however a transformational way of looking at that would be to say that the problem is not a dirty canal side. The problem is a community that's disengaged from its environment. And actually, a transformational approach to that would not be to pay someone to clean it up, but would be fund the local Clean Up the Canal campaign, which is a registered charity, which attracts volunteers, does training programs in local schools, organises days out for the local you know, daycare centres or care centres and things like that. And what you have is an organisation that cares about its community. And which one of those do you think is the cheapest and the more sustainable? Clearly, it's a transformational one. But unfortunately, we in the sector have fallen into that transaction notice. We've, we've been told for so many decades you must compete you know competition with the private sector will make you better that we've ended up losing complete sight of our value in that contract is the fact that we're transformational we're engaging the community and also the other thing Alberto is and this is the thing that I cannot seem to get into the heads of the local authority and procurement commissioners charities don't walk away when the money disappears, the private sector disappears. Of course they do. You'd be running a really shit business if you didn't walk away when you suddenly start making losses. Everybody would wonder what the hell you're on about. But a charity gets so attached and engaged and entrenched in its community that when the money dries up, they don't. They find a different way to raise the money or to get the work done or to attract resources. How do you not see, not you, you know, how does the world not see that that transformational approach to change communities or supporting people in poverty or in need that's the way to do it. Hmm. On that front, what sort of transformational change would you like to see happen for the next 10 years? What's that journey look like? So you've given us a bit of an insight into where things are today, where we've come from. Um, what would you like to see happening, especially as we head over to that 2030 year of the Sustainable Development Goals? I would really like to see the government, any government of whatever colour or persuasion, to really understand that the, the voluntary sector is a vital part of the fiscal economy, not just the social economy. I would like them to understand that if the voluntary sector was to go on strike, which it never would, the entire economy would collapse. Who do they think is paying for the people, the older folk, to get to those hospital appointments? Who do you think is covering up for, you know, the, 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 the failures in the care system or, you know, do you know what I mean? It's like, I would really like them to say, instead of that kind of patronising, bless, isn't it lovely, charity is something rich people do when they retire to give back or that, you know, do-gooding wokers do. You know, I would really, really like that to change and then to understand that we're a critical part of the economy. I think it's... um. Oh, for goodness sake, what's his name? Andy Haldane, who was at um, yeah, Pro Bono Economics, has gone, has gone, is going to be the chief executive of the RSA and is currently at level, working at Leveling Up with Michael Goh. He estimates that the value of the charitable sector to the UK economy is something in the region of £200 billion, Alberta. I mean, that's a massive amount of money. And I would really like, I think that if we could find a way for governments to understand that, that would transform the way in which the whole of society engages in which companies engage in which the public sector engages and in which citizens engage deborah we're going to have to have you back on the show because there's just a million different topics that i still need to cover <laughs> and we've run out of time what's that key takeaway you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after we uh, after they finish listening to today's show the key takeaway i would have is that most people given the right opportunities are fundamentally good and they want to help each other. 
that would be the key takeaway. Don't despair ever. Look for the helpers. There's always, always somebody who wants to help and wants to support. And that's what keeps us going. I love it. Deborah, thank you so much for sharing not just your insight, but so much passion, so much energy and a great sense of urgency I, I spot as well. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the Do One Better podcast today. Ditto. Thanks to you too, Alberto. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Deborah Alcock-Tyler, Chief Executive of the Directory of Social Change. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And for information on more than 150 interviews with remarkable thought leaders in the field of philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at Liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Many thanks as ever, and I'll catch you next week.